Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Culpable Case Reviews is released every Friday and brought to you absolutely free. But if you want early access to next week's episode and ad-free listening, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus. For more information, check out tenderfootplus.com. Enjoy the episode. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals interviewed and participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV or Resonate Originals. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and other graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. It was, uh, it's kind of foggy the time that morning when uh, we got a knock on the door. It was uh, early Friday morning. My husband answered the door and then he ends up waking me up and telling me that Micah was gone. And then I just said, how? And um, he said it was, uh, she was hit by a vehicle. This is Carissa Heavyrunner, the mother of Micah Westwolf, the victim in this story. Micah, a 22-year-old Native American from Arley, Montana, was killed on March 31, 2023, when she was believed to have been struck by a passing motorist while walking down U.S. Highway 93 towards her home on the Flathead Reservation. Sadly, Micah's story is one as old as time, or maybe as old as our nation wants to admit. An indigenous woman goes missing or is murdered, and justice is never served. This has become a recurring theme amongst Native Americans, namely women, an epidemic to be specific. MMIW, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women. I'm sure you've heard of it, but prepare to be enlightened in this episode. And I understand it is an investigation. They can't reveal certain things, but I have not seen anything at all. That's how today's world is for us indigenous people. And being on this side, I can see the frustration and I'm trying to have it end with me, have it end with my daughter. As a member of the Blackfeet tribe in Montana, Carissa says she has witnessed firsthand the abuse and injustice that indigenous people often face but it took on a whole new meaning when she lost her daughter. Now she's become a vocal leader advocating for indigenous people and countless MMIW victims 
including her daughter. The world needs to see our pain, feel it, hear it. This is what we have been experiencing for years, and we don't get justice. Just got to keep the momentum going, keep pushing. This is only the beginning. This is a culpable case review of Micah Westwolf. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's Journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline. Uncover the mystery of June's sister's murder and find out about scandalous family secrets. The gameplay lets you find hidden clues as you investigate a murder mystery. Escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Let your imagination run wild when decorating your island estate and collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. Whether you're craving a good mystery or looking for an escape, you can immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. I travel so much while working that I personally love to play it while sitting around airports with all that free time I have. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I was just going to say that we just uh, did an awareness booth, sharing Micah's story, creating awareness, you know, by sharing her story and the other family. I reached out to Carissa earlier this year after noticing some videos going around on social media about a young indigenous woman who was recently killed on her reservation in a tragic hit-and-run incident. That woman was Carissa's daughter, Micah Westwolf. She was just 22 years old. Through some digging, it appeared that police already knew the identity of the driver who hit Micah before fleeing the scene, which is why there was so much outrage on social media, because no charges had been filed. The driver was walking free. This was obviously a story I had to know more about. When I had the chance to talk with Carissa, 
She'd just returned from an awareness campaign she was running to spread the word about missing and murdered indigenous women, such as her daughter. Growing up as a young Native American woman herself, she's long been an advocate for her indigenous people and the hardships they've faced throughout history, and still face to this day. But since losing her daughter, she's found herself near the forefront of a movement that necessitates our awareness if families like Micah's are ever going to see the right side of justice. Yeah, we can't lose momentum. Got to keep going, keeping her name out there and sharing other people's stories and just got to keep going. After settling into a local recording studio in Missoula, just outside the Flathead Reservation where she resides, I asked Carissa to share a little more about her story and how she got here. I was born on the Blackfeet Reservation in Browning, Montana. My dad is Blackfeet and my mom is Navajo. Just how my parents raised me. And that's what I wanted for my daughter, to get a good education and to uh, have more opportunities than I received growing up on the reservation. Hard work and sacrifice, that's going to get you to where you want anything is possible. And that's the, that's the qualities my parents instilled in me. And that's how I tried to raise my children. I had Micah when I was almost 20. I became a single mother, and then I just wanted a better life for her and to go back to school, and so me and my sister, we moved over to the Missoula to attend the University of Montana, and I ended up loving it over here on the side of the mountains, so we never left. After spending so much of her life on the reservation, Carissa knew from the moment she stepped foot in Missoula that it was the best place to raise Micah. She felt the city would afford more opportunities for Micah and a chance to really see the world. But it wasn't an easy decision, as this also meant leaving her roots. Family is so important to us, and so is our culture, our uh, indigenous culture. Family was very important to Micah as well. She knew that, that we had to be there for one another no matter what, and that knowing who you are, where you come from, And that's a big, important part of growing up because she knows she's Blackfeet. She knows she came from here, and she also knows she's also Diné, which is Navajo, and Cree, and Klamath. She has four different tribal affiliations. I would always tell my daughter, you know where you come from. You come from here. You come from this long line of strong family members, strong women. Carissa isn't one to lament over the struggles of being a single mother. Sure, it wasn't easy, but she seems to have managed well. She had Micah. What could be better than that? But to her and Micah's surprise, eventually their family would grow. Actually, it would double. Just shortly after moving to Missoula, along with Carissa's sister and her children. We were working and going to school, taking turns, watching each other's kids, and I end up meeting Kevin in 2006 and he had a son named Davian and he was three Micah was three years older than him and we just start seeing each other and then we introduced our kids and it just we just became a family we needed a a dad and a son and then they needed a mom and a sister (laughs) it just It worked out, it fit together, and um, 
yeah, we became a family since then. Carissa tells me that Micah and Davian were very close, like best friends. Meshing two families isn't always a smooth transition, but she's thankful that the two hit it off. For Davian, having an older sister to look up to was cool. And there was plenty to like about Micah. She's always loved being outside. And she was a reader, too, as well. She would devour books. Anything that caught her interest, she would just do research on it until she knew everything about it. She was very athletic, too. She loved sports. She played basketball, lacrosse. She did running. She would run races in Missoula, and she would take first in her age category. And it just seemed like it was easy for her, like she barely even broke a sweat. She was a good student. She was like, uh, if there was a Christmas program or a play, she was one of the loudest singers. (laughs) You could just hear her. She would just sing at the top of her lungs and do the motions. There's so much that could be said about Micah's glowing personality, her achievements and aspirations, and so on. But Carissa says if you really want an idea of who Micah was, look no further than her Indian name. Her Indian name is very fitting for her. It's uh, Motapaya Sapi. Everybody looks at her. She just had this attention, this light where, I guess... You had to look at her. She caught your attention. She was loud, funny. She had this loud laugh that was just contagious. She made her entrance known when she came into a room in our house. If she came home, I'm home, just shout at the top of her lungs. And so that I know that's what we're really missing right now is just her loudness, you know, because now the house seems pretty quiet, but, but we feel her with us. Micah was a bold young woman, brimming with confidence and positivity. But if there was one thing that was known to dampen her spirits at times, it was the ignorance and sometimes outright bigotry that she and so many of her Native people faced. Growing up being the minority in Missoula, going to school, I can imagine there was a lot of pressure, a lot harder for her, because there was a lot of times she would say she felt... Like, she stuck out like a sore thumb, different, couldn't relate to teachers or students. When she would try to joke around, they didn't understand what she was saying, didn't know about certain things that we would joke about growing up on a reservation. I think my daughter, she dealt with some racism, not as much. Um, I think the thing for her, because she was more light-skinned. They didn't realize she was indigenous unless, you know, they actually knew or heard her name. But still, I know things like that bothered her a lot, like her cousins or other friends that were Native. She stuck up for them. She defended them. That's how she was. She was like a protector. There's those family values for you and the strength that was instilled by her mother and tribe. You see... Carissa had already prepared Micah for what she might face in the real world. She remembers what it was like. The world can be a cruel place, 
especially for Native Americans. We weren't treated very nice. We were called names. We don't belong here. We aren't welcome. I grew up having to experience that and would just talk to my parents and my dad would just tell me, don't don't react, just ignore them. Or if someone's trying to ask something, educate them. When you educate them, you can tell them, maybe you shouldn't say it this way. I would say it this way, but showing that you care to answer and take that time. So that's how I was raised. That's how I raised my daughter. And that's how she was. You can't fight hate with hate. Be the bigger person. Micah clearly took those principles to heart. It was obvious in the way she interacted with her peers and how she handled conflict. She respected others, plain and simple. She was understanding, very understanding. She taught us a lot too. I mean, just her perspective on things and and there's times I would be like, look at her and, and just think like, wow, I was blessed with this child that's teaching me or opening my mind up to things as well. Or she would always tell me she had a lot of thoughts in her head and she would have a hard time sleeping sometimes. And so I encouraged her to start a journal, start writing these thoughts down. That could be a way of releasing them. Looking back, Carissa is very thankful that she encouraged Micah to start a journal. Now it's become a keepsake, a way of remembering Micah, and even a guide of sorts. I asked if she'd be willing to share some of Micah's writings, and she quickly pulled out her phone. Heaven on earth is what we seek, but we forget that there is beauty in the ugly. Oh, how life would be if there was no ugly. No struggle, just everything we need was guaranteed. You know, the type of certainty that only a God can see. How foolish we must be to think that beauty is all we need, when in fact it's the ugly that gives life meaning, purpose, and something to test our capabilities. We're here on earth to develop our souls. We're here to experience the whole range of emotions that come with being a human being. By no means shall we chase perfection, but instead pursue wholeness. So whenever you're feeling down, remember you choose to be on this earth at this exact time to develop your eternal soul and return to the divine realms we come from. The soul is immortal and death is just a portal to the other worlds the worlds of unseen colors that shine bright like a starry night, a place where time doesn't exist, just pure bliss. She just uh, wrote a lot about the world, how people just need to love one another and quit focusing on the differences because we're all the same. Be loving can't fight hate with hate. She was talking to her dad, and she said, Kevin, if I were to ever be, someone were to murder me or something, she said, would you, I want you to forgive them. She said it for a reason, not saying that she knew, but she just wanted us to be forgiving and to move on with our lives. So it's comforting, too, also, in that way that that's how my girl was. She... 
wasn't hateful. She was accepting. Knowing what I now know about Micah's tragic death, it's chilling to hear these words she spoke just months prior, essentially telling her family that if she's ever murdered, forgive the person responsible. Micah was wise beyond her years, and she motivated others to be a better version of themselves. I can imagine Carissa having to channel a lot of that same energy since losing her daughter. A harsh and unimaginable reality in itself. But the ensuing investigation has also left plenty to be frustrated and even angry about. I asked Carissa to take us back to the day she learned the news. It was the early morning of March 31st, 2023, sometime between 5 and 6 a.m., when Carissa and her husband Kevin were abruptly woken from their sleep. It was uh, early Friday morning. We got a knock on the door. My husband answered the door, and then he ends up waking me up and telling me that Micah was gone. And then I just said, how? I said, what? And then he said, the two tribal police were outside the door with the coroner. He said it was, uh, she was hit by a vehicle. And I just merely called my mom, and I called my dad, and then I called my sister, my brother, and, and then Kevin was still out there talking to the police. Then Kevin comes back in, and I said, so do they have the person that hit her? I asked TJ, did you get him? And they said, yeah, I got him. It bears mentioning that Carissa and Kevin knew responding officers Haynes and Fiddler personally, which isn't surprising considering these officers were with tribal police. On the reservation, essentially everyone knows each other. But on the chilly morning of March 31st, after finding Micah deceased on the side of Highway 93, these two familiar faces were tasked with sharing every parent's worst nightmare. The only consolation, if you can call it that, they allegedly knew the person responsible. And for a moment, this assurance from tribal police gave Carissa and Kevin a sense of hope. Left to deal with the sudden death of their daughter, they thought if police had the perpetrator, they'd surely get answers and justice in due time. But if that were the case, I probably wouldn't be here telling this story now. Instead, the weeks and months following Micah's death have only raised more questions and left her family in the dark with no resolution in sight. It started the very next day when they went to the scene and ran into Wayne Bieber with the Montana Highway Patrol. The very next day after when my girl died, we went down to the where she got hit off the side of the road. We wanted to put flowers by that mile marker, mile marker 20, outside of Arlie and we saw two highway patrol vehicles. And we're like, what are they doing here? And then uh, Bieber, he comes over and starts asking about my daughter's phone. He said, we have to investigate 24 hours, everything prior. I'm like, but she didn't even have her phone on her. Why do you want it? To add some context here, Carissa's right in that Micah did not have her phone on her person when she was killed. But the phone is in many ways significant to this case, 
or at least the events leading up to her daughter's death. From what I've gathered, the reason Micah went walking down Highway 93 that night was because her phone had gone missing, and she thought she left it at a bar that she had visited earlier in the night. Later, it was discovered that the phone had slipped through the crack in Davian's car and was found underneath the passenger seat where Micah had been riding. I said it was in her brother's car, and I said I didn't want to give it to him. I said, I know, it's her phone. I have her pictures. I have videos. I do not want to give it to you unless I know I can get it back. And so I was kind of arguing with him for a bit, but he really wanted her phone. I said, well, I can follow you and I can come pick it up. We just got to make sure we check everything. Looking back, Carissa wishes she'd had more time to think on things before verbally accepting Bieber's request for the phone. But in the moment, he was adamant. And Carissa, obviously overwhelmed with the traumatic situation she'd found herself in, just wanted to take some time to focus on funeral arrangements for her daughter. Then they could shift their focus to getting justice. After taking some time to grieve and arrange Micah's funeral, Carissa returned home, where she was given an update from a few friends who had been doing some research on her behalf. When we came home on Easter Sunday, that's when I had some friends reaching out to me that had been doing their own investigating, searching jail rosters, who could have hit Micah, you know, who who could have done this. And there was one article that did say Sonny White, and it was from the DOJ. The news came as a surprise to Carissa, because in that initial visit from tribal police, they seemed to allude that the driver was a male. Now, weeks removed, Carissa learns that the driver, Sonny White, was instead a female. And her identity had now been revealed to the public as the driver who struck Micah on Highway 93. White was supposedly arrested hours after the incident, but not in connection with Micah's death. Instead, she was charged with two counts of criminal child endangerment, as her two children were reportedly in the vehicle when the incident occurred. But about a week later, those charges were dropped, and White was released on bond. Lake County Attorney James Lapotka said the charges were dropped without prejudice, meaning they can be brought back, because Montana Highway Patrol had failed to produce a final report. As you can imagine, Carissa was in shock. I didn't know what to think, because I was wondering, well, why isn't this woman in jail? Why did she get released? Because she was found in Polson, parked in a parking lot, and a police officer was driving by and saw the damage on the front side, the front right corner. And I guess there was uh, car fragments. Her side mirror was knocked off, and that was at the scene. She told the officer in Polson she thought she hit a deer, but didn't stop, didn't pull over, didn't call for no aid, and there was no skid marks at all, no brake marks. After learning this information, Carissa and Kevin made several attempts to contact lead detective Wayne Bieber with the Montana Highway Patrol, the trooper they'd run into on the side of the highway the day after Micah's death. They were more eager than ever to discuss Micah's case. It took us three weeks to get a hold of the lead investigator. And we had tried calling him from my phone, Kevin's phone. 
left voicemails, nothing, and he finally answered. And he sounded surprised to hear my voice. Oh, um, Miss Heavy Runner, I, I, I was just going to call you. And then I'm thinking, sure you were. Unfortunately, the discussion wouldn't go as they'd hoped. Instead of offering more insight into the case, the focus quickly shifted back to Micah's phone. The weird thing was he just kept asking on the phone and another time he called if I had any legal counsel, if I had any, had signed with an attorney or anything. And he was trying to get me to look at my daughter's phone and he was going to take pictures of stuff that he thought would be helpful. And I said, no, not without an attorney. And right then his attitude changed. Well, I just wanted to look and take a few pictures and I was going to just give you the phone, but now... And then he throws it in an evidence bag and rips off the red tape thing and, well, now you have to go through a subpoena and his attitude just changed like mad. And you have to go through all this and see a judge to get it back. And then, uh, like, making me feel bad or guilty like I did the wrong thing. And But I know my rights. Since this meeting, the actions of investigators have caused a lot of turmoil for the family. Beyond the phone records, authorities also requested toxicology reports for both Sonny and Micah. If Micah's report shows she had been drinking that night, it could really complicate this case. After doing some digging, I've discovered that Montana has strict laws against walking on the road while inebriated. It's considered a crime. Carissa worries that investigators could try and hold Micah accountable, rather than the person who hit her. And she also worries that the phone records could be used to create the narrative that she was suicidal or reckless at the time of her death, both of which Carissa denies. And to make matters worse, she's been given no clear answers from authorities as to how they're pursuing this. He would just come back to certain things or say, you got to look at the totality. And then with the victim blaming, it is illegal in the state of Montana to be intoxicated and walking on the side of the road. He repeated that like five, six times. So we knew where he was going with this. After this encounter, Carissa couldn't help but get the feeling that her daughter was no longer being treated as the victim in this. Either way, bridges with highway patrol were essentially burned at this point. And Carissa realized that if authorities were asking whether or not she had legal counsel, maybe now was the time to get it. And that's exactly what she did. Through the Montana Legal Services Association, which helps provide legal services to low-income families, she was connected with fellow tribe member Erica Shelby, now their legal advocate. My name is Erica Shelby, and I'm a missing, murdered Indigenous women's activist. Growing up as an Indigenous woman herself, Erica is all too familiar with the MMIW epidemic and the abundance of tragic stories out there just like Micah's. It's what compelled her to get into this line of work. I've been doing MMIW awareness since about 2013. Just being, I guess, uh young Indian woman on the reservation was able to see the MMIW crisis for myself, but just got into the legal advocacy portion a couple months ago. I've been helping these families navigate the system 
kind of fill some jurisdictional gaps and help coordinate in between different agencies and authorities. Erica says that her unique position as a legal advocate affords more flexibility than an average attorney might have, which is very important given the community she represents. But her job stretches well beyond giving legal counsel. Much of her work is about spreading awareness around individual cases as well as the bigger epidemic her people face. MMIW cases don't typically garner the media's attention, so she has to make it a point to reach out to the media and share stories like Micah's that can so easily go untold. Since taking on Micah's case, she's done everything in her power to make sure it doesn't become just another case that's unsolved. And it's been a challenge in many ways, which we'll get into. The first being that she's so new to this line of work. Yes, so that was my first referral through Montana Legal Services. I guess I was expecting more civil, especially to begin, but you get what you get. And to start out with this was was definitely a challenge, but I mean, it's something that needs to be done. While Micah's case wasn't really what she'd expected to receive as her first, she has proudly taken it in stride. And the more she's learned about this case, the more it's fueled her to investigate the circumstances surrounding Micah's death starting with the events of March 31st. It was just a regular day for Micah and her family. That evening, her and her brother had gone to play pool at our casino, which is just a couple minutes away from our homes. And then after that, they were trying to make it to a different bar uh, in Ravalli to buy single cigarettes. And then once they leave there is where everything gets fuzzy. So what we do know is that at some point she realizes her phone is gone and she tells her brother to pull over and he pulls over off the side of the highway where about four miles from the incident site. She thought she had left it at that bar. Her brother kept telling her that, hey, it's probably just under the seat you know, let's just go back. And she's like, no, I left it there. And there's tons of people there. So I imagine in her head, she's going, I have a ride. It's not too far back there. If he wants to keep going, that's fine. She gets out of the vehicle and she leaves to go back to the bar itself, which is just a mile away, at which point he heads home, which is about uh, maybe seven or eight miles away. To get an idea of the timeline from that night, they've had to rely heavily on Davian's account, as he and Micah were together for most of the night. Erica insists that Davian's story is credible and has remained consistent. But from the beginning, she also felt that she could confirm the details through other means. The events of that night took place up and down a roughly 20-mile stretch of highway, with plenty of establishments along the route. So Erica figured, why not try and find some cameras that may have captured them? After doing some digging around town, she was able to obtain some surveillance footage that further supported Davian's account. She didn't go into much detail, but here's what she said. I basically just, you know, took some videos from my phone, people's personal videos, and then some from our one of our dispensaries here, and then some from our tribal casino itself, which helps me kind of put together the story a little better on the timeline. What really stood out to Erica from the footage she gathered was that from the time they're seen rolling into town 
and presumably around the time Micah separated from her brother to return to the bar, there's a gap of several hours where she's unaccounted for, until she's eventually found by tribal police sometime between 3 and 4 in the morning. I mean, it all lines up. It all makes sense, except for she gets out and she's walking for four hours, a walk that would take her, because she was an excellent hiker and outdoors person, would probably only take her about an hour, if that. And then um, it's, you know, hours later, five, six in the morning, that the police come and let them know that she's been killed and that they found her on the side of the highway. Based on the side of the road that Micah was found, it's believed that she was walking home from the bar where she'd gone to look for her lost cell phone when she was hit by the vehicle. But Erica has been unable to confirm this detail, and until it's verified, she doesn't want to rule out other possibilities. That said, she's confident that there is surveillance footage that could help answer this question, and possibly many more. While she's done everything she can to help Carissa and Kevin gain clarity about Micah's final moments, she fears that the police aren't operating with the same sense of urgency. For a lay person as myself to be able to go in and get subpoenas and warrants, it's it's just not going to happen. So the best thing that we can do is send spoliation letters to have this material preserved for the investigators. And then all we did was go around and ask these same people, hey, have the police been by? Have they called you? Have they asked anything? And that's how we found out that they weren't doing any of this surveillance collection along the highway at all. We did send spoliation letters to a few places who were able to save us some footage, which should tell the story. We're not sure if the investigator, the prosecutors even have this footage. And to this date, they're not willing to share anything with myself or the family. Erica readily admits that it's possible authorities have obtained the footage she had preserved. But if so, they've yet to confirm or share any of it. As it stands, she's having a hard time believing that they ever followed through. All she's had to go on is the footage that she was able to obtain. And while it helped confirm Davian's account from that night, it also raised more questions in her mind, specifically around the time Micah was found by tribal police. We have... At 3.47, the time of death, that based on the coroner Williams's scene and um, what the first officers on scene told him, which means that the first officers would have had to be there by 3.47 to say that she was dead. We know who the first officer on scene was. What bothers me is in the dispensary footage, over 20 minutes later, he's seen coming from a different direction. So it's just, it's not adding up. He would have to break serious protocol to leave the scene for some reason and go the opposite direction as the person who we think hit her. There's no telling what happened between the time Micah was found and the time the family was notified. But we do know that responding officers Haynes and Fiddler notified the family roughly two hours after finding Micah's body, around 5.30 or 6 in the morning the family estimates. And when they broke the news to Chris and Kevin, they also assured them that they had the person responsible, presumably in custody. This has always felt like more than a simple mistake to Erica. That was one of the first major red flags that was a deciding factor for me to take this case, 
When I spoke to Kevin and Carissa, the first thing that the two tribal officers came to their house and said was, we got them. And they didn't advise them that if they were going to have a comprehensive autopsy, that they could be the only ones who would be able to request that. Not the police, not the crime lab, not the prosecution, them. And so then my questioning began, why are these two police officers trying to make the family feel like everything was okay? Because of that, their daughter did not receive a thorough and comprehensive autopsy. And then, because of that, she was also cremated. So there's no way to go back and get physical direct evidence. Why would our police do that? I mean, even if you think you got the person, all police know there's still a case. Everyone has this process and they're innocent until proven guilty. It just didn't make sense to me, and I needed to understand those police's motivation. I don't think I would have even had any second thoughts about it, except that Louis and TJ are really good friends with Kevin. There were some calls put out that morning of them saying that they were looking for Kevin and Chris's number, which was weird to us because they have their number. They know where they live. They're very good friends. so. There was a lot of things leading into this that just didn't sit well with me, which is why I thought there needed to be more investigation. While Erica is careful not to implicate tribal police in any way, she's also very vocal in her disappointment over how they've handled this. When she took on Micah's case, she felt that if anyone could be trusted to handle it, it would be people from her own tribe. Because simply put, they should understand where the family is coming from. But Erica says... That's not the vibe they've given thus far. I think we were met with like a lot of apprehension, if not tension, between the tribal police and myself, which completely uh, surprised me. It's our own police, and they know Kevin and Carissa, but they have not been helpful. In this whole process, I think that they have held us up the most. I'm completely lost in this. I just, I don't understand Captain Fiddler is my cousin. I've known the chief of police, Craig Couture, for years. I really respected them and, and looked up to them. And this this is kind of uh, shaking my foundation a little bit. I mean, you're talking about initial reports that are less than a paragraph long that we haven't been able to see. You're talking about them being the only agency with body and dash cam, and they were unwilling to give us any of that very basic characteristics and functions of an investigation just are not there. Erica didn't necessarily expect a warm response or cooperation from the larger state police forces, but she definitely expected more from tribal police, the very people who live amongst them and understand the injustices their people have faced throughout our nation's history. I asked Erica if it's possible that this is merely a symptom of two different departments overseeing the same case. In other words, could tribal police be limited in what they can say, per Montana Highway Patrol's request, as a means of protecting the integrity of the investigation? She didn't mince words. No, they can absolutely share anything on their end. The Montana Highway Patrol, the lead investigator, the prosecutor all told me, yeah, just ask them. The tribe has our own sovereignty. 
We don't answer to anybody, especially not the state. All the family want in a situation like this is answers. And not only have they not given that, but the information that they have given, it's confusing. It, it doesn't make sense. I want to be able to say, my police aren't like this. They are better than state police. They are better than highway patrol, but I just can't. This could have ended the day I took the case. And it, it's been really a frustrating process. The police told the family a story, a very specific story. And they say Officer Haynes was just coming off duty, going home to Arlie. And Officer Fiddler was just coming on duty, leaving Arlie. So on these surveillance footages that I've gotten, it should clearly show that Officer Haynes comes through. Sonny White's vehicle should go racing the opposite direction. And then Officer Fiddler's vehicle should come from that same direction. It's, it's that basic. It's that simple. We've asked from the beginning, show us anything that corroborates that. Your dash cam, body cam, the county, the highway patrol, anybody. And they have not been able to produce that for us. The very basic elements of an investigation are just not there. Despite their setbacks, Erica and Micah's family have continued to push forward without the help of authorities. Now, it's about getting the word out in hopes that justice will be served in due time. Because remember, at one point this case appeared as good as solved. It was widely publicized that Michael Westwolf was killed in an unreported hit-and-run incident and that Sonny White was allegedly the driver who hit her. And much more has come out about her in the recent months, none of it helping her case. Some of the information even makes Micah's family wonder if the act could have been intentional. Let me catch you up to speed on Sonny White, starting with how she came into the picture. As documented in the crash report on March 31st, 2023. Sonny White was driving a Cadillac Escalade with her two children named Arian and Nation. More on that in a moment. From what we've learned, Sonny is not from Arlie and has no known connections to the area. She's from Butte and was likely passing through the reservation at the time of the incident. Erica tells me that shortly after Micah's death, police put out a bolo, be on the lookout, for any vehicle that looked like it was recently in a car accident. Around 90 minutes later, an officer from the neighboring town of Polson identifies Sonny's vehicle in a parking lot. And a few hours later, she's arrested and booked in the Lake County Jail, not in connection with the hit and run, but for child endangerment. Here's a summary from the Montana Standard. Jay Nelson, public information officer for Montana Highway Patrol, confirmed that the agency was notified of a vehicle versus pedestrian fatality crash on Highway 93, north of Arley, on March 31st. He said the vehicle involved was located later that day and the driver was interviewed. He confirmed that White is being investigated as a suspect and said the investigation is ongoing pending search warrants and reports from the Montana State Crime Lab. Lake County court records later revealed that while Sonny was initially cited, the counts were dismissed without prejudice pending crime lab results. Sonny was then released on bond. But that's not the end of it. Just seven days after Micah's death, Sonny was arrested again in a separate incident involving felony charges of burglary and parenting interference. 
A report from the Montana Standard detailing the case affidavit stated that on April 7th, at about 1.15 a.m., White contacted Butte Law Enforcement, requesting a civil standby to pick up her children from their biological father's house. White told the officer that she had two children with a man who lives in Butte and said she wanted to take the children from him because he was not a fit parent. The children's names are Arian and Nation, which the Montana Human Rights Network said clearly indicate her support for white nationalist ideals. The children's ages and genders match those in the March 31st fatal crash report. The affidavit also states that the officer that responded to the April 7th call was aware of Sonny being in jail for an incident where someone was killed on a road and Sonny was driving a vehicle that was involved. According to the charging document, White told the officer that the charges were dropped due to her blood results being negative, but prosecutors later discovered that she bonded out and the charges were not dropped. White appeared in court for the charges stemming from the April 7th incident on May 18th, 2023, where she pleaded not guilty. She's not known to be in custody and is awaiting her next court appearance. To this day, she hasn't been charged in connection with the death of Michael Westwolf. And for Carissa, it's hard to understand how this can be. I just want to know the truth. I don't know. I mean, you think of all kinds of things, scenarios, possibilities, and one that pops in my mind is like, what if this woman did not hit my daughter? Could explain why she's not in jail. You can sit there and think of thousands of different things, but... I'm trying to stick to the facts, not get tunnel vision on different things. While every case presents its own nuances, one of the most challenging parts of Micah's is that authorities have presented little to no information on the circumstances surrounding her death. The Lake County Sheriff's Office declined our request for comment, understandably, as this is still an open investigation. But what's really troubling about this case is the few bits of information that authorities have shared seem to imply that they know who's responsible for killing Micah, yet no arrest has been made in connection with her death. All of this has resulted in a mounting outcry for justice, with Carissa helping to lead that charge. The way I was raised was when you're in a position that people are going to listen, look at you, you use that to help others. And that's what I wanted to do was to help shed some light on other families that have been in the same situation and received no justice. And for the world to see that this shouldn't be our daily norm. And doing the walk, that was June 13th through the 16th. We called it the Justice to be Seen Walk. So the walk was to share these other family stories to help give them some healing. If we were doing what we're doing now to help support another family or MMIW, my daughter would be right there, right by my side. She would be one of the loudest voices shouting. Micah's family needs any and every willing voice to join them in their shouts for justice as they await the conclusion of Montana Highway Patrol's investigation. Recently, they learned the case has been assigned a new lead investigator. And while they've yet to meet them, 
They're hoping this investigator will finally bring some answers. But with the way things have gone, they can't sit back contently. There's still plenty of work to do in the meantime. I will continue doing what I have to do. Make sure that my girl's name is not forgotten and help shed some light on other families where they got no justice. It's not hard. We just need answers. We need justice. For more information about Micah's case and the various ways that you can help, please visit www.micahmatters.com. Micah is spelled M-I-K-A. From the homepage, you can find links to a tip line if you have any information to share. There's also a GoFundMe if you'd like to donate and a petition to the DOJ to investigate this case. If you'd like to sign it, just click the link that says sign the petition. Again, all of this and more can be found at micamatters.com. Thanks for listening. Culpable is a production of Resonate Originals and Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey. Written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper. Executive producers are myself, Mark Mennery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsay. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production from Jamie Albright and Taylor Floyd. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, and Adam Townsell of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. Sources for this episode include The Montana Standard, The Cut, and The Daily Mail. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcast. Additional content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to tune in next week when we return with an all-new case. Till next time.